Hello, I'm Sam Breakgear and welcome to Brains Bike Back, the podcast looking at how our brains, psychology and society are impacted by the ever-evolving technology that surrounds us. According to a recent report, ransomware hackers have shifted their focus onto businesses with a 235% increase in business threat detections, whilst consumer threat detections decreased by 24% in the last year. If you're a business, a ransomware attack is probably your worst nightmare. You get the message, you get the ransomware note on your screen, then what? Do you pay? How do you pay? Will you get your data back or systems back if you do pay? For a novice, this can be a scary situation. But if a company needs expert help, that's where Coveware comes in, a company that specializes in ransomware negotiations. Joining me on today's podcast is the company's CEO, Bill Segal, to discuss what happens when a business is hit, how a business can be prepared before and during an attack. And for our Weird Wide Web piece, we have a story about a very wealthy teenager from the US and his world-class Fortnite skills. Well, um, let's get started then. I just want to start by saying thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I'm pretty sure there are probably hundreds, if not thousands, of companies being hit with uh, ransomware attacks right now. You probably know better than I do. And you could be out there doing what you do best, but instead you're here with me, so I really appreciate that. No worries. Happy to. Um, Would you be able to start by describing a little bit uh, about yourself, about your industry, and Coveware? Sure. So, uh, well, my name is Bill. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Coveware. My background is um, actually principally in financial technology, uh, but mainly in early and mid-stage venture-backed companies. Um, I've also done um, some short stints within the the cybersecurity space before founding Coveware with my partner, Alex. Uh, We worked together um, about half a decade ago at one company, and my Co-founder Alex um, also comes from the financial technology, but also the business continuity disaster recovery uh, industry as well. And um, we founded Coveware because we felt like there was um, really a big missing piece of the puzzle um, as it relates to uh, the problem of ransomware. Uh, The first being that there was no data. When we kind of looked at how big of a problem ransomware was globally, All we found were surveys, Um, and surveys, as I'm sure you're aware, can be biased. Um, They're sentiment-based, and so we figured that's odd for as large of a problem as this is. You would think that there would be very accurate data. It would be kind of like if you were trying to solve uh, the problem of car crashes and making cars safer, uh, but instead of actually studying the the car crash data, uh, you just kind of asked folks how they thought cars should be made safer, which we didn't really think is a good solution. Um, So we said, you know, the only way to actually collect this data is to build an incident response company that helps firms uh, and organizations that have been attacked by ransomware remediate their issue. uh, And let's collect the data in the process. Let's aggregate as much of it as we can. And let's see what we can do with it. So uh, that's what we did. Uh, The company is about a year and a half old now. We handle um, hundreds of ransomware cases uh, inbound per week and from all over the globe. And what we've kind of found by aggregating that data over time is that we can really do three things with it. Um, Number one, we can follow the patterns uh, and try and give uh, the next client that comes in the door a good understanding of what is likely to happen. Um, Ransomware is very pattern-driven. It's the 
you know, in any given week, uh, it's the same threat actors using the same type of ransomware, getting into companies the same way, and the outcomes tend to be clustered in a pretty tight distribution. So when we see a type of ransomware in a threat actor in a new client, we can tell them this is likely to be the outcome. It'll take this long, it'll cost this much, and here's the data recovery rate that you can expect. Uh, and that's a lot of visibility to provide a company that's likely in kind of a state of panic. The second thing we do with our data is we we publish research. So we put out a lot of information publicly on just best practices and trends that we're seeing. Uh, and we try and mix this, uh, our, our kind of qualitative and quantitative data from cases with data from other security firms that have more technical uh, information about malware and ransomware to put out, you know, more comprehensive reports public consumption and public good. Uh, and then third, um, we provide an aggregated anonymized subset of our data to law enforcement every quarter. Um, we want to do our part towards stopping this problem. And so sharing uh, pertinent information uh, with law enforcement is a large part of that effort. And I suppose for our listeners that perhaps are lucky enough not to have ever been uh, affected by ransomware or are a bit unsure about what a ransomware attack is or how it differs from other kind of like a cyber attacks. Would you be able to explain a little bit about what happens when a business becomes a victim of a ransomware attack? Sure. So um, just to, to define um, a ransomware attack, ransomware is a type of cyber extortion. So it is financially, at least most of the time, financially motivated cybercrime. These groups are not out to damage a business. They don't really have any personal issue with the business or the business people, even though the attack feel very personal. They are doing this because this is the way they earn money. It's a business to them. So when a, when a company has experiences a ransomware attack, typically it involves the threat actor group getting into the company in some way, shape, or form, either through an unsecured remote access port or perhaps through uh, a phishing email that installs remote access onto an employee's machine and allows them to get into the network. It typically involves the threat actor then wiping or encrypting the backups, if there are any, uh, before then turning off any you know, antivirus or endpoint protection that would otherwise prevent the attack. They just turn it off and uh, then encrypt all of your data. Then they leave behind a note and they wait for the victim company to contact them. And so the effect of this is, you imagine going into your office one day and um, every email you have is gone, every file you have is encrypted, your QuickBooks or your financial folders are all encrypted, you don't know how to contact your clients, uh, you don't know how to invoice your clients, more or less your business can be ground to a halt. So it's a very scary, very existentially, potentially damaging and risky uh, incident to find yourself in, and it is not uncommon for companies to to suffer, you know, uh, severe long-term damage to their businesses, or sometimes go out of business as a result of a ransomware attack that they can't recover from. And um, so, say for example, you are a business, and you, like you said, you walk into your office, whatever, everything's normal. Then you find the note, and you're like, that sinking feeling sinks in, and you realize you become a uh, your business has become a victim of ransomware, what is the first thing a business should do? So the, the first thing a business should do, or at least an employee should do, is contact their IT provider or contact their IT consultant. Uh, a lot of folks are, cons like, there's a poll recently that a you know, majority of employees are afraid to report that they you know found a ransom note on their machine. And 
um, you have to raise your hand and get professional help first. When you don't do that, two things happen. You know, the potential for the problem to get worse goes up exponentially and the business will just be down longer. Uh, so the first thing that anybody that sees a ransomware note on their machine should do is immediately stand up and find their IT support person or call their external IT support person uh, and ask for help. Uh, in general, the first priority is to secure uh, the network and to prevent the spread of ransomware. Securing the network typically involves changing all usernames and passwords, especially the administrative ones, potentially pulling um, the machines and the network down and offline because it is not uncommon for these groups to come back in in the middle of the incident if you don't do these things. And it's also common that the way that the threat actor group uh, got in is actually a very common one and that you don't want some other group coming in you know, a couple hours later. Uh, so securing the perimeter, securing the network so that no further damage can be done, isolating and powering down disconnected infected machines in the network so that the spread of the ransomware can be halted. Uh, and then from there, um, you can really begin, a company really begins to kind of understand what has been impacted, what the business impact of the impacted machines being offline will be, and what their available avenues are to recover. You, you mentioned that um, the first thing to do or the best thing to do is contact your IT provider or IT support. Do you find that most of the time your clients or people that come to you, they have pretty good in-house IT uh, experts? Or do you find that they're often lacking them? And if they do have their experts in-house, do they come to you because this is something which I can't imagine, unless you're very unlucky, most people and IT experts probably don't have that much experience uh, <laughs> um, dealing with ransomware hackers or dealing with these kinds of attacks. So essentially my question is, is like, do you find that many of your clients have strong IT uh, experts in-house but they still need to come to you or is it a case that most of your clients just don't have that um, knowledge or expertise in-house? Well, it really depends. We, we assist companies all up and down the, the spectrum of size. So we have companies that come to us that are, you know, a, a sole practitioner dentist office um, that doesn't have any um, IT support all the way up to major public multinational organizations. Um, I think the common denominator is that th these events are, uh, they are common, but they're not something that a company faces every day. And so um, specialized advice is, is what they come to us um, to seek, because it, um, if there's one thing we don't advise is trying to kind of do this on your own. There's just, there's too many potholes to step in trying to do this on your own. When someone does give you a call, what is the first thing that you would do? How, how, how would you respond to, to a call from a client saying, Clover, we need your help. Sure. So um, we're typically going to ask the, the important stakeholders uh, so we can assess the situation and also make decisions or on the call. So that'll be, you know, someone from finance or operations, a decision maker for the company, uh, and then obviously someone from IT or security uh, who can speak um, knowledgeably about the state of the network and the machines and what they've observed. And what we're going to do on that initial call is try and determine uh, the type of ransomware, potentially identify the threat actor group. And from that, we're typically able to provide some data to them on what they're what they're facing. And then what we want to learn from them is you know, what has been impacted, you know, what, how many machines, what do those machines do, uh, what are the available backups for those machines, uh, how long will it take to restore those machines? Um, and then what is the resulting impact on the operability of the business as a result of 
those machines being offline. And the, the, the kind of the goal is to set a strategy on how we are going to, to handle the recovery. Uh, so as to minimize the downtime, minimize the cost, uh, and maximize the odds of data recovery. And do you spend much time actually speaking with the hackers or discussing, or is there, is there much dialogue between, uh, between yourself and the hackers holding this, these data, the data and systems uh, for ransom? Or is it mostly technical, the work you do? A large part of what we do is extortion negotiations. Um, so this is an area where um, we, we, we definitely don't recommend folks that need to engage with a threat actor do it on their own because different threat actors behave different ways and you just you want to know this information about how to, how to handle those conversations. And also for a company that's in the midst of a crisis, it can be a, a very distracting and also a very stressful thing for a, a person or persons to manage when they don't have experience doing it. Uh, so it, it is a large part of what we do on a daily basis is handling those extortion negotiations on behalf of our clients. That's pretty interesting. See, when um when I first heard about your company, uh, I thought it was um I suppose I kind of maybe glorified the idea in my head when I think of negotiators or certainly hacker um, negotiators that deal with ransomware hackers. In my mind, I <laughs> I think um I glor I maybe watched too many films, Bill, because. <laughs> In my head, I always think of it like how a hostage negotiator might negotiate with, um, uh, I suppose, kidnappers or people that are taken hostage. And it, I see it as a real kind of high octane, really thrilling kind of um, process. <laughs> is it anything like that or is it pretty relaxed? Are the hackers generally pretty relaxed normal people or is it very kind of like intense? Uh, it can really run the spectrum. I would say the majority of the stress associated with handling these these negotiations is really just you know the impact and the timing of the outcome of the negotiations on our clients. Um, you know most of our clients are in very urgent situations, uh, like I mentioned, potentially existentially damaging if they can't recover. Um, and so that obviously you know puts a great deal of pressure on us um, to handle the negotiations well. Uh, but that's our job. You know, we're not out on the you know the airplane tarmac with the radio, uh, you know, in the pouring rain. Um, we're kind of just sitting behind computers typing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a little, it's definitely a little less dramatic, and it's probably a little stressful. But uh, it it has its uh, its moments of stress. And do you use certain psychological tactics or techniques when you are negotiating with these hackers? Uh, we do. Uh, we use uh, different techniques with different groups. Uh, you know, one of the reasons that we aggregate all the data is that so that we can look back at what has been successful and what has not been successful. Uh, and when we see tactics that uh, have been successful, we try to reuse them um, and obviously not make it known that we're reusing them. But um, we have a kind of a big playbook of tactics and techniques that we use uh, depending on the situation um, and the threat activity. Would you be able to give an example? Is there anything that comes to mind or um, or anything that you use which, uh, I don't know, might be interesting for listeners that you're able to share? <laughs> yeah, we, um, we, we keep this information uh, pretty close to the vest. We assume that everything we publish is that they read it and listen to it. and. Uh, uh, we don't want to give them the advantage. No, I understand. But on a separate subject, um, from what you know of the industry, do you find that the majority of businesses give in to hackers' demands or do they refuse to do business with these hackers? Sure. So uh, 
the, the majority of ransomware attacks that result in data being encrypted, uh, the outcome of those does not even involve contacting the threat actor because they have workable backups. And frankly, that's that's the majority of ransomware cases, and most of which we don't even see, right? If, if we get contacted, it's because there's the possibility that negotiation and payment may be necessary. And when that is the possibility, we always advise running that in parallel to other options to restore data because it just saves time, right? If you if you if it's going to take you three days to um, comb through all your backups and see what's viable, you don't want to then start the the negotiation process three days later. You want to run it in parallel, and then when you re- reach a point where you know you have you know option B ready to pull the trigger, uh, rather than having to start option B and spending you know two or three days doing it. So I would say broadly, the, the majority of ransomware attacks don't result in even contact being made with a threat actor because uh, there's a workable backup and the company doesn't need to. Um, with regards to cases that uh, that we handle uh, that actually come to us where that's the poss- um, the possibility, I-, I would say that it's it's the it's the slim majority, like it's certainly over fifty percent, but it's not like a hundred percent of the cases that we handle result in the company actually needing to make payment. Uh, if there's one thing that's really encouraging is uh, I think that a lot of companies, when this first happens and they realize, especially when there's no backups, right? That's which is we we see that a lot, where either they don't have backups, period, or the backups have been wiped or encrypted. When we um, set our strategy and get into our negotiations, um, you know, we tell the company, listen, you know, you, you need to start restoring and rebuilding systems and bringing things back online because this may take, um, it may, you know. It may take a day or two, or it may take it may take longer. Um, so you can't plan on you know snapping your fingers when we make the payment and your networks is is just restored. So start rebuilding, start getting machines back online. We recognize there's not going to be anything there, but people still need to email. People still need to start processing orders. So start rebuilding your business, and we're going to do this in parallel. Um, and if there's one encouraging thing, is I think once you get past once companies get past the initial shock. They start realizing and contextualizing the business value of what's missing, and they start finding ways to either recreate the data from other places that they didn't know about, um, or realizing that potentially the business value of what's been lost isn't that critical, um, which is always great because it you know it gives us more negotiating leverage to you know to not pay when the business value of what they need goes down. But you know on the other end of the spectrum, we see our fair share of cases where you know the company is just rudderless; they have you know, hundreds of employees that are idle. They have a warehouse that can't move product, and they, you know, they tell us we will be out of business in 48 hours uh, if we can't get back up and running, and we have no backup. So payments are only option, and so that happens as well. I suppose it's an expensive lesson as well. Uh, it's an expensive lesson, regardless. I think um, it's uh, regardless of how it goes. You know, the the former example I made or the latter. It's um, it's, it's something that I don't think folks fail to remember as they bring their networks back up and hopefully change their security posture in the future. Well, hopefully, uh, if they listen to this, then it's uh, a wake up call. Well, you know, it's it's a it's a valid point because I think one of the issues with ransomware is that people, a lot of especially a lot of small businesses, assume that they're too small to be a target. Um, they think, well, who would ever find me? You know, I'm just some teeny little uh, company here. You know, b- barely anyone even comes to my website. Um, and that's really the wrong way to think about it. Uh, uh, ransomware actors are not after you by your business, by your person. Uh, they find you because of 
your security vulnerabilities are searchable, just like Google, right? Uh, and you're in a bucket of low-hanging fruit. It's easy to attack you. And if you're in that bucket, you're in that bucket, regardless if you're big or small. Um, so you're on their radar, and it's really just a question of when, not if it happens. Have you ever encountered a situation where a victim has paid a ransom, but the hackers have not released the data or the systems? Of course. So the the you know statistically, it's unlikely, and we put these statistics out every quarter. Um, and this this may surprise folks, uh, but I'll contextualize it. Um, we look at two conversion rates when we look at. Uh, when a ransom gets paid. The first is payment default, right? And that's pretty self-explanatory. You pay and do you get a decryption tool back or do they just walk off with your money? Um, so globally, the payment default rate is only about 4%. Only about 4% of cases do they just out and out default and never actually send you any sort of decryption tool. The second conversion rate that we look at is, okay, you've paid, they've sent this tool over, does it actually work, right? Does it actually decrypt your data? And the data recovery rate, um, I believe uh, in Q2 was like 92%. So there is some slippage there. We do see file corruption, uh, and that's that's actually principally done during the attack. So it's not that the decryption tool doesn't work, it's that the encryption process actually damaged uh, the files um, so they couldn't be recovered. Um, so it is common to have some data loss um, as a result of file corruption. Um, when an attack occurs. What do you think would happen if all companies refuse to deal with hackers? Yeah, so it's, it's a really interesting academic question. And there's, a, I think, a very healthy debate going on, you know, really globally right now on this topic. Um, I, I think, you know, the, um, and, and I say academic because there are, there are practical just kind of power laws that intersect with these things. Uh, I think it is absolutely correct that if every single person decided that no one would ever pay a ransom ever again, and everybody adhered to that, then yes, cyber extortion would stop because this is a business. It is a money-driven business. The practical reality of, of this, though, is uh, until, and, it, and it's very difficult to kind of explain this until someone has been in the room or has been a, a victim, the practical reality is that no single business or organization is going to be the one that martyrs themselves for that cause. Uh, when a business owner finds himself in this situation and it all kind of comes, you know, the realization of the gravity of what's going on comes clear to them and they realize their two choices are lose all my customers, fire all my employees, close my business down, or pinch my nose, swallow hard and have to go through this process. It is a very easy decision for them. And that is the situation that you know, uh, we are at the intersection of every single day. And I can I can tell you that when the business side of the encrypted data isn't there, we tell our companies don't pay. If they've got a backup, but it's a week away and they want to just expedite things by paying, we tell them don't pay. It is only an option when there is the existential risk of the company failing, that then it is something that the, the, the client has to consider. And it is not a torn decision. It really isn't. The business, it's a very clear, you know, it's almost like been through such great trauma. They're seeing the world and their priorities very clearly. And they understand the decision that they have to make. And it's not a hard decision for them to make in the moment. Mm -hmm. I can imagine in an ideal world, it sounds, it sounds great. Everyone just disagrees. Oh, everyone just agrees. No, 
don't deal with them. But when you've got that note on your screen, and like you said, it changes things. Yep. So my last question to you, how can businesses reduce or help to prevent the prevalence of attacks and hackers? So it, it's a really broad question, and, uh, and I'm not going to I'm going to try and shy away from like tactical security advice just because there's so much of it out there. But uh, if, if there's something I could impart upon the listeners, it would really be as follows. Uh, everyone's a target. If you're connected to the internet, you're a target. And this is a big industry. Cyber extortion and ransomware is a large global industry. Uh, it has deep specialization. It has marketplaces. It has financing. It has communications. It has all the hallmarks of any other legitimate industry. And the monetization unit of this industry is uh, a person or a company's data. And so the way to avoid becoming you know, a cog in that industry is to make your unit expensive. Make it hard. Because there are so many companies that have vulnerabilities that, you know, that, that are you know, in that low-hanging fruit bucket. If you can lift yourself out of that bucket, everyone else will become the target and you won't. It's kind of like the old saying that you, know, you don't have to outrun the bear, you just have to outrun the person that you're camping with. And that's, it's a very true analogy, although it sounds kind of unfair, but it is true. When, when it's hard to attack you, the threat actors go to somewhere easier because it's cheaper and they're running this like a business. They're not going to spend uh, a half a year trying to break into a small company because that's the only target they have. It's just, it's too time consuming. It's too expensive. They'll go shift their focus elsewhere. So when you think about all the tactical security advice that's out there, just think about how to make it expensive, how to make it time consuming, how to make it hard for a threat actor to do damage to your organization and then prioritize those, you know, whatever those steps are. And off the top of my head, it's, you know, security awareness training for your employees, multi-factor authentication for any system that you care about, and properly partitioned uh, backups. Um, and if, if you can do a few of those things, um, you can keep your business safe. But overall, there's just there's no there's no substitute for investment. At the end of the day, you know, most of the companies that we, at least the small ones that we that we deal with, they just haven't invested, and it it all catches up to you. So, you know, security is infrastructure. Uh, just like a bridge. If you don't maintain the bridge, eventually it falls down um, and security is the same way. Well, hopefully with the information you've shared today, anyone listening can avoid uh, a very expensive lesson later on. I suppose this, this podcast is completely free. <laughs> so listen to this and then uh, you can avoid a very heavy price tag to get your, your data back, assuming that they, you are unfortunate enough to become a victim. And if they do get hit, then I guess they can call you. Indeed. Fantastic. Um, those are all my questions uh, for today. Thank you so much, Bill. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and um, it's been very informative. Thank you so much for having me. No problem, anytime. Weird Wide Web. Like most teenage boys, I grew up playing video games, and I frequently heard, go outside, don't spend so much time playing Xbox, read a book. Essentially, it was the same message. Spend less time playing video games and focus more on other productive tasks. Well, for one US teenager, this nagging is almost definitely a thing of the past. According to the BBC, 16-year-old Carl Giersdorf won a record-breaking $3 million to become world champion of the computer game Fortnite. 
So I suppose the next time someone tells Carl not to spend so much time on video games, they might feel like a fool when they see his new penthouse and Ferrari. Although, let's be realistic, he's a teenager and a hardcore gamer. So, like most teenagers in this day and age, that money's probably going straight back to Fortnite. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find this podcast and all our other episodes at sociable.co. Thanks. Bye.